Today's lesson is lesson number eight, lesson number nine, rather, the importance of human values. It's a little um, unclear exactly how to approach it. It's not as bad as time last week, which was just a, a sheer matter of not having a clue. Although, just to editorialize about lesson eight for a few minutes here, I really learned something last week. <laughs> I've been behaving completely differently and just thinking really differently. It was, it, it was really fun to sort of go into it without... I mean, it was just one of those things where I had to figure it out as, as I went along, just starting from what I knew because I felt so over my head. But I've been... Uh, just the ideas have just been rolling around repeatedly since then. And um, particularly, I'm, I'm under pressure because of trying to make all the costumes and get all the costumes together for the children's play, which is definitely a project that, that you feel you don't have enough time to do. And all of that projecting into the future. I was talking to someone today and just saying, you know, if you don't project into the future, you don't have anxiety. Anxiety is entirely based on past and present. And just like... That's just such a, a revolutionary idea. There's something in this whole course, the way Swami has written it and approached it, that really is exactly what it says it is. It really will change your whole way of relating. They have a testimonial from a woman in India who basically, when she started studying these lessons, she was like a fairly low-grade employee um, and she wasn't really supervising anyone. She has risen... I honestly think they said her salary, she said her salary has gone up 10 times. And now she, she supervises a very large department in the company. And she says it is 100% because she started, she read these lessons and she saw that her entire way of relating to everything she was doing was, was off. And she shifted it, and as soon as she shifted it, just everything started coming her way. It was very, I keep thinking of her when I read these lessons. Um, last week, about time and timeliness, timelessness, was really about the capacity to be creative and the ability. You know, it's, it's just such an interesting thing to realize how how, how different it is if one moves through life with a sense of superconscious intuition rather than just sort of hoping that things are going to come out right. And how, how different it is, how, 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 how few people in the world are like that. And that's why if you just put out a little bit of energy in a certain direction, it really makes you completely different. Also, how many people, and that's what this lesson this week is about, how few people have the capacity to be genuinely serviceful and genuinely helpful and genuinely concerned about other people and what a different impression it makes on your mind. It was a very small thing, but um, in order for the, for the school play, I had to make um, hats for the Chinese army. And, I, and then the budget, of course, for the whole thing is really small. It turned out we only had about eight, six or eight soldiers, but historically in these school plays, because we have a lot of, you know, naturally it's an elementary school, you have a lot of little boys, and the boys absolutely love, and so do the girls, to run up and down the aisles screaming and waving weapons that usually um, almost every play, because every great story has some conflict in it, and often it involves soldiers, and usually as the play progresses, Matthew gives in to the entreaties of more and more children who want to be part of the crowd that runs up in the aisle, up and down the aisle, screaming and waving weapons. So I, as the costume maker, have gotten accustomed to the fact that no matter how many soldiers we start with, it's going to double by the end. And, and it's going to double at the last minute as they keep pulling on his sleeve and he starts getting more and more frazzled and can't think clearly and throws them into the army. But anyway, the end of that being that I needed Chinese army hats. And so I realized that painter's hats are the sort of same shape, very vaguely, for stage purposes. So I, this is such a long story, but I, I started going to the local paint companies just to find somebody who gave away those paper hats like they used to have. And I finally found them, and they were very generous with me. Um, and then I needed spray paint. And, you know, they just didn't have my color, but they'd been so generous with the hats, I was going to buy it anyway. And the man, just as clear as could be, he said, look, if we don't have the color you want, Walmart is the place that has the most color that you can buy. And if you don't find it there, go to Orchard Supply. I mean, just straight up like that. 
And I, I don't have any reason to go back and buy paint, but I keep looking for a reason to go back and buy paint because I would definitely go there and buy paint because it was just so, like, he really was interested in me. And it made a really deep impression on my mind because he didn't have what I wanted. and He didn't want my money because I wasn't what I needed. Let's see. I actually got the hats. Must have been Kelly Moore. Must have been where I got them because they all say Kelly Moore across the front. So that must have been the place. Come to think of it, <laughs> yes, just go buy some paint from them. <laughs> um, the uh, oh, I was starting to say the the principles that Swami is talking about in this week are he calls them human values, which is. A consciousness that I have such a hard time projecting myself into, and I think Swami does too. But still, where people do become so um, concerned about their own realities that they they miss the context in which we're all living, and the the timelessness that the the illusion of time last week, it actually sort of clicked my mind into just a whole another level of realizing just what a different reality is going on around us. And, and Swami writes about that. If everything in this world is a symbol, this is a phrase that I've repeated because he's repeated it many times, that we see these things that appear to be happening, but they're actually symbols of something much deeper that's happening. And it's, it's an extraordinary thought when you start relating to anything. Um, human love, your children, conflict. <clears throat> conflicts you're having at work, your health, all of it is the, um, the visible expression of invisible realities. And it's the invisible real- realities, invisible to the conscious mind and the ordinary senses, that are actually the reality that we're trying to relate to. So Swamiji in this lesson sort of builds this whole case for, the, for a very simple principle which is that it is impossible to act in this world with, with impunity. Everything that you do actually has a, has a rebounding effect on you, and let's say even more profoundly than that. In terms of relating to other people, you can't um, hurt anyone without also hurting yourself. It's just so simple that, that any wrong action that you take has a, has a relatively speaking small effect on that person, but a deep and profound effect on you. And, and there's this, um, this actual elevation of consciousness, that's the only thing that you can describe it as, where after a while, it, it, it's the same as, in the same way that you just wouldn't put a, a, pick up a fork and stab it into your own hand, you know, you just don't do it, because you know immediately what the consequences are going to be, and it's nothing that you want. The, even the temptation to misuse people, to abuse people, to try to take from them unfairly, it just it can't arise in your mind because the sense of pain is the same sense as the pain for you. It's, it's so interesting in the lives of so many saints. I remember in the movie about St. Bernadette of Lourdes, there's a, a movie called, what is it called? Has it a name? Song of Bernadette, thank you. It's a, it's a, 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 there's a book by that name, which is kind of a fictionalized account of her life. It's a wonderful book. And there's a, an old movie that was made about her. I mean, it was made a long time ago, and it's a beautiful movie, Song of Bernadette. It's a black and white film. It's really, really wonderful to see. And she was a young girl tending the fields, and she, and she saw this apparition that everyone else decided was uh, Mary, she never really said one way or another. It was the, the beautiful lady is what she called her. And, uh, um, oh yes. She went on after she had the vision of Mary a number of times and then she was still in her early teens and Mary said that she wouldn't see her again in this world. She'd see her in the next world. So, because there was really nothing else to do, Bernadette went into a convent. And she didn't live long. She only lived into her early 20s. And toward the end of her life, when she was, uh, you know, I think essentially lying on her deathbed, 
she began to run through in her mind, you know, and this um, thought was so powerful in her mind, you know, and, a, and any normal person looking at that, the inclination is to brush that away and sort of say, oh, that's not important. But many, many uh, saintly people find themselves, you know, very, very concerned about transgression so fine that no one else would even notice it, and yet for them it really looms like a, a very real um, uh, uh, black mark. And, of course, that's because the more uh, sensitive and pure their consciousness becomes, the more they actually literally experience what everyone else experiences. And so any little action that they may have taken that has inflicted suffering on someone else, and they're feeling it. They say, um, when you die and go out of your body and have your life review, that you, uh, any suffering you cause to people, you experience what you caused. Um, Daniel Brinkley writes about this in his book, Saved by the Light, which is also a really interesting book. Daniel Brinkley was struck by lightning, literally. He was talking on the telephone in a lightning storm and and the lightning came through the phone wire and uh, just fried his system in an extraordinary way. And he was declared dead and actually picked up and taken by the EMTs to the emergency room. And he tells a fascinating story, among other things, being out of his body and watching over the, the shoulder of the paramedic and looking at his body there and having the thought, I thought I was better looking than that. <laughs> just, you know, just sort of to show how natural the energy is in that moment. But he, he, he went into the death state and he went through the process and he was taken up into the astral worlds and had extraordinary experiences and visions and then was returned to his body. Um, but of all things, his, his profession, he, he had been in the military and he became a, a sharpshooter and he continued to work as an assassin for, I think, the CIA. And he would actually travel around the world, like to South America, Vietnam, and other places where there was some excuse for conflict. And he would, uh, you know, using his skills, he would kill people. And he describes some of the, you know, things that he did. He talked about, a, I think it was a Vietnamese general um, that he... Um, killed while the man was like in the middle of a party with his family and uh, he just talks about you know lining up the gun sights and pulling the trigger and at that time he didn't have any um, uh, inhibitions about what he was doing he believed in what he was doing and or he was a bully which he also admits and so therefore he liked being able to do this Um, but then he went through his afterlife experience and he had to suffer all the pain he'd inflicted. And as he said, of course, it wasn't pretty. Because that was the way in which the soul can learn um, the implications of its own actions is to experience what it's inflicted. He was obviously advanced enough to be able to have a different experience. Sometimes people are just plunged into a state of darkness and they may not even have the awareness of why. Um, don't think anybody gets away with it because they don't. But then, of course, that had a profound effect on him because suddenly the implications of his actions were there. And he jokes, I don't know if he's still living now, but he jokes, he said, that he's, since that experience he's been so good that he really looks forward to his afterlife review this time because he's done so much good works and he knows that it's going to be a really nice experience, real different than the one before. He's very lively and is talking. He died twice more after that? Good. But he's still alive. Now, that's right. He had some strange brain. Near-life experience, he calls them. (laughs) We had him. This is a sidelight. But he came and spoke in this church. Um, I don't exactly know how we managed to pull that off, but we did. And he came and spoke here. It was absolutely packed. It was really one of the most entertaining evenings we've ever had. The man was just beyond. He had no inhibitions, I think, is the only way. He was just... He had no fear. That's exactly right. He was just afraid of nothing. Because, I mean, he'd been through everything in addition to his death experience, which I think he'd only had one at that point. When he came back into the body from the lightning, his, his body was such a mess that he had, you know, just years of physical struggle and 
and financial troubles and all this. So it's like, what is there for me to be worried about anymore? So he would just, he just entered the room. And I mean, he was a very good, he actually was a very big teacher for me because he was absolutely unafraid of people. I think that was what, one of the qualities about him. He was just unafraid of people specifically. And he made me appreciate, very deeply appreciate, um, especially at that time, I think because of him I'm different now, the degree to which I was afraid of people. I don't know what, I, I started asking myself, what do I think people are going to do to me? You know, and afraid of them in this sense, which is when he walked into this room, it was full to the, to the walls, and it's like he just put his heart out to every single person in that room. And he, he didn't have any sense that he had to protect himself from anybody's vibrations. You know, he was so centered in his own um, reality of the greater reality that he, he was able just to absorb everyone. And, and he talked a lot about that specifically. And from him, I began to relate to down-and-out and homeless people very differently. Because he, he would talk about, he, did, he has done a lot of that sort of work, working with people who are um, marginalized for one reason or another, dying or poor. Or, and again, he, has, he just has no um, inhibitions about it because he has no sense that anybody is in a place that they shouldn't be. And that's, that's where his comfort comes from. You know, we project on people a lot that we want their situation to be different than it is. Because really, almost always, because it makes us uncomfortable and we imagine that they're suffering in a certain way and, and that suffering makes us uncomfortable. I mean, it's a very fine line because one can feel tremendous empathy and compassion and the sympathy is really for their reality. But there's a point at which it steps in where the greater sympathy is for our discomfort. And that's the hardest way to help people if you're really trying to help yourself. You know, people who are very good at working with homeless people or mentally ill people um, are often extremely relaxed about the situation that the other people are in because the, the, the caregiver, the helper, has no stake in that person being different. They may have a a heart-driven desire to assist that person and help them move forward, but they don't have a personal stake in it. You understand the difference? Because if you have a, if you have a stake in it, now this is skipping ahead in this lesson, but um, Swami talks about non-attachment and talks about how much more you can actually acquire and do if you're non-attached. Because if you're attached in any way, that puts into every situation this little bit of self-interest this little bit of a desire. Even if the desire is that you get better, that's a different desire than that um, God express through you in the way he needs to express through you or that you learn the lessons that you need to learn. I know many of you have heard me express when I was dealing with my, the, the last years of my parents' lives, um, I became very anxious for them to leave the, the planet because it was so inconvenient for me. I mean, that's, it took me a while to come to that blunt, unflattering statement. But that's what I finally realized I was doing. I was attached to um, getting um, out of the, the, the demanding reality of taking care of them. And, it, and so therefore, I started thinking it was in their best interest. But I wasn't really to, to take an astral vacation, as I called it. Um, and eventually, of course, they did leave their bodies, because everybody does. But there was that I was pushing it because I wanted a certain result. And it wasn't, I wasn't able to be in the center of their reality because I was still caught in the edge of mine. And when we really have no self-interest, the way we relate to people is completely different and everybody can sense it. You, know, you can just really sense that that's the truth. Now, um, let me try to get back to here. There was a point. Oh, you know, it all comes back. This whole course is really interwoven. You remember how much time we spent at the beginning on the law of karma? And when we were talking at the beginning about the law of karma, we were emphasizing it very strongly in terms of our own lives that we need to be, you know, very at peace with that. But of course, it's also true for everyone else around us. And even in business, or even especially in business, 
you know, you really want to give people something that they really need, but the more anxious we are about anything, you know, it's, it's a very... Um, to really feel the extent to which God moves our lives just really makes everything different. Swami often talks about how he heard a sermon at his mother's Episcopalian church and the priest was talking about how heroic the saints are because they're able to, you know, to love people anyway. And uh, Swamiji was just, I mean, he was, he did, there was nothing he could say or do about it. But it was like the only way that that priest could perceive the behavior of a saint was that they had great mastery um, over their natural impulses. He couldn't imagine the transcending of ego, which is really what, it's, what it is all about. And that, that's what I was, that, that was the thought I was reaching for. That um, oh, It keeps eluding me. It's so frustrating. Um, mm. He talks about how we, we have this natural impulse to expand our consciousness. But we, we mistakenly believe that we can expand it through the ego instead of by transcending it. And that's the, that's the delusion that people follow through. That's the, that's the uh, myic hold, that we just keep trying to get bigger by, by increasing the ego's grasp over the realities around it. We want more power, we want more money, we want more people in our lives. And the more we get our power, you know, from that kind of thinking, the more inwardly contractive we actually feel. You know, it's a very complicated thing. And he's also explaining that if you're not really sensitively aware, you just know, you, you sense somewhere that you're unhappy, but you have no idea why. And that I was thinking about the Festival of Light, where it says where the bird is told to go out and be expansive and to multiply and take what you get and give it to others. And the bird becomes enamored of, of the experience of what it's getting. You know? And then the bird says, what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? And so the bird goes into this um, revolt against its own divine nature. And then it says, and the bird clings to this thought even though repeatedly it lost everything it had. And only by just sort of hitting up against that wall over and over again. And think about all that you see in the world around you. The way people behave, what they think, what they're seeking, and and how many options there are in the world. Just think how long it takes before the soul begins to wake up to that fact it's interesting to me because when I was very young, I, I was a seeker, but I didn't have words for it until I, met, until I was 19, actually. But I, I kept using the word happiness. I didn't have the word bliss. I used the word happiness. And I, I kept trying to think of all these different ways in which I could be happy. And I came down to human love and uh, human family. Um, not birth family so much, but the children I would give birth to. I was reflecting yesterday, what a strange illusion family is. Especially the thought that, you know, I can give birth to children and then this reality will take place after that and all of these things will happen and, and how incredibly complicated it becomes and how rarely it actually plays out the way we want it to play out. Um, but I had that thought And then when my life ended up the way it ended up, and very little of the specifics that I intended actually took place. But I began to understand that all I had ever wanted was expansion. An actual breaking of what felt to me like an unbearably confined reality, which was my own consciousness, my own mind, my own desires. And that when I found out about self-realization, it was like that was the doorway. Because then you could actually walk away from the whole construct. You know, because the whole thing was based on 
this tight identification with this one being. Now, Swamiji is putting this in terms of business and service to people and so on. But if in every encounter, whether it's an intimate encounter or an impersonal encounter or a casual encounter or a long-term encounter, if you, if you know, if you realize that this individual standing in front of me is as much my own self as myself. Now, what we have to appreciate in this is you always have to behave appropriately. And that's a very important word because sometimes people think that this means that you know, every homeless person on the street, I have to just get out of my car and give them everything I have and take care of them for weeks and we can get ourselves completely crazy. We have to do that which is karmically appropriate and inwardly guided for us to do. I've mentioned before that I, it's interesting when I'm with Swami and different impoverished people will ask him for help, that he, he sometimes responds and he sometimes just turns his back on them. You know, that there's like this inner sense of what's appropriate to give and what isn't. So in our relationships with other people, the more we can stand inside of their reality and outside of our own, this I was talking about last week, the more um, appropriate our responses will be and the more our isolated sense of ego will just give way. You know, the, um, I love the way Swami says in these lessons and he says it over and over again, all our suffering comes because we're too strongly identified with this limited ego. It, it, I've heard these things for so many decades and it's like they're finally beginning to make sense to me. I, I, I often have to say to people, just don't give up. You know, no matter what it feels like to you, just keep holding on to these thoughts and just keep pushing your consciousness against these thoughts and guiding your consciousness toward what you can only a little bit understand. And just slowly by slowly, it's like the the muddy water clears. And all of a sudden you're just looking at something that just seems so self-evidently true. You don't know how you could not have known it before. I was thinking about Daniel Brinkley. I was remembering more of what I was thinking about that. That It's definitely true that, that, some, that people have different vibrations and that not all of their vibrations are immediately compatible with our own. And it's also true that sometimes other people's magnetism is stronger than our own magnetism and we don't necessarily want to take it in completely because if it's not a compatible magnetism it could influence ours negatively. But it's also true that a great deal of that anxiety about all of that is only based on a preoccupation with oneself and one's weaknesses and one's possible problems and all of those things. And that once one removes that thought there's much less possibility even of those things happening because then one's awareness becomes more expansively tied to the infinite and whatever vibrations pass through you are just translated into, into those vibrations. I, I found it to be a tremendous exercise when relating to people, all people, when any sense of trying to distance yourself from them comes into your mind because they're boring because they're unpleasant, because you think you have something else to do, um, all of those different thoughts, I try to center into myself and just ask myself the question, what am I afraid of? What am I concerned about? What do I think is going to happen? I mean, there are people in the world who really mean you ill and will physically assault you or do things that you really do need to avoid. But most of our encounters are allowing ourselves to have this sort of niggling sense of judgment, of unpleasantness, of anxiety. And the whole, the whole of the spiritual path is basically creating for ourselves a constant sense of inner peace. And so much of our peace is disturbed by the ego holding on to all its little preferences. And if we can just practice on an everyday basis, and that's where Swami's talking about this, um, even in our business, that the more we're just there, and w- w- how may I serve you? What do you want of me today? How can I be of assistance? And you being my own self, what can I do for us today? Um, 
That's when we just goes into a very interesting and encapsulated discussion of the yamas and the niyamas, which I know many of you have studied in other contexts, but but not all of you. So since Swami has brought it up, we'll run through it here. Um, Patanjali was a great sage of some many centuries ago, and he wrote aphorisms, which is to say very short, simple statements. But in his aphorisms, he essentially described the progress of a soul from delusion to liberation, and it's called the Eightfold Path. There are these different elements of it that start with right behavior and end in liberated consciousness. And the first step of his path is what's uh, known as the Yamas and the Niyamas. Um, means that, though that the Yamas means the things that you do, and the things and the Niyamas are things that you refrain from doing. And interestingly, it's ten qualities. And it's like there are certain um, templates that you can apply to your life. And so when you get into difficulty, you ask yourself, which of these basic tenets am I violating? And that will guide you. I have a, a, a friend who raised eight children. And uh, she was a strong disciplinarian, but early on, and she was a devotee, she put the yamas and the niyamas on the refrigerator these ten qualities that a person needs to have in order to be a righteous and a balanced human being. And whenever there was a dispute between her and her children, or especially among the children, they would all go to the refrigerator. (laughs) And then they would read these qualities and they would try to determine, you know, in what way had they strayed away from them. And she asserts that every single dispute within the family was always able to be explained and arbitrated according to the yamas and the niyamas. Because if one is following those rules of behavior, then harmony is the inevitable result. And of course, so she was training their character in a very um, impersonal way. She said it also sort of got her off the hook because the refrigerator was the arbitrator of who was right and who was wrong. (laughs) It wasn't her. So the first five are what he calls proscriptive, which means attitudes which demand self-restraint. And the purpose of these is to help the ego find its true as opposed to false fulfillment, he says. And to, he says, if the ego's impulse, if its attitudes are selfish, it is to divert its own natural desire for self-expansion into ego-endorsing attitudes. I mean, we, we try to strengthen ourselves through the ego. And Patanjali's yamas help us to remove these blocks, enabling us to flower, of course. So the first one is called harmlessness. And ahimsa is the word, and it's been made a word made very famous by Gandhi's extraordinary exercise of ahimsa in that challenge that he faced in liberating India. Master said the reason Gandhi was successful using ahimsa was because the British are essentially gentlemen, is how he put it. He said if he had tried it against various other countries, it wouldn't have had any effect. But the British are honorable and had a conscience, and they found it impossible to assault people who weren't fighting back. Others would have just slaughtered them. Um, But harmlessness, the way it's phrased, is that what we have to do is that, and this is a a fundamental part of the principle of of the yamas and the niyamas, is that if we restrain the impulse to harm others, then that allows the natural unity of the heart to come forward. And this is a very interesting point. It's not like we have to create virtue. We simply have to restrain that which is not virtuous. You see the difference? It's a very important quality because sometimes we feel that we don't have goodness within us. And that's the, that's the worst and the deepest kind of confusion that the ego plants upon us is that we lose contact with our own deeper reality. And the, the entire principle of Patanjali's path is that our fundamental nature is good and that we interfere with that goodness. And, and that's such an optimistic way also to look at our lives, that we're basically good. And you know, in our school here, the Living Wisdom School, we, we do really wonderful things with the children in this school. And um, it's, it's so... It's annoying in a certain way. It's frustrating and a little annoying because we watch other schools co-opt the vocabulary. 
um, Helen, the director of our school, once was in a, a session where they were in elementary schools and there was a, a lot of people presenting middle schools and she was one of the presenters and they, the parents were moving from one group to another so the presentation of her panel happened two or three times. And she sincerely and honestly presented what we do in our school. And the first time she presented it, 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 it was not, it was a distinctly different program than the other presenters. But a lot of her ideas went over really well. And she started watching the other um, schools just kind of pick it up and just sort of use those same ideas. And it's not that they're not sincere in their efforts, but in, in our school, our teachers really live this reality that we are all divine souls and that we're all here to, to transcend the ego. And the purpose of education is to give you the tools to be able to do that. And then there's a further reality to it because all of our teachers are meditators and really have this more subtle perception. They actually perceive the children in the light of their inner divine qualities. And so many times in schools when they try to do that, especially in quote, quote progressive schools, it's a kind of romantic, sentimental belief that children are inherently wise. I mean, they're not inherently wise. They're just children and some of them are wise because some people are wise, but merely being young does not make them wise. And to say, oh, they know what's best for them is like saying, like, people know what's best for them. They don't. They make really dumb decisions. The quality of goodness that our teachers perceive in the children is precisely what Patanjali is talking about. All we have to do is train them to be able to restrain their wrong energies, and then their right energy is their own nature. Now that is so profoundly affirming to be dealt with in that manner. And it's also, Master says, it's very important for children also for this reason, is that the children's ego structure, especially in their elementary years, it's not really strongly enough in place. They don't have, they, they experience their, the events of their life, but they don't yet have that ego identification with them. That's what comes in at puberty, and that's why children change so much, so radically. Because at puberty, all of a sudden, whereas in early childhood, things happen, and they don't know that I did it. But in, in puberty, suddenly they deeply identify with everything that happens, and that's why you'll say something like, you may, perhaps you should clean up your room before you go out, and the child will turn to you and say, you hate me, you've always hated me. <laughs> because suddenly to criticize any aspect of their behavior is to assault them completely. But smaller children, part of the art of raising them is that you have to always relate to the child and then the two of you relate to its behavior. And if you relate to the child as if the child is its behavior, it's very confusing to the child because he doesn't identify with it in the same way. Um, so... Uh, really being able to, to teach the children that their own nature is good and all they have to do is restrain that which interferes with the expression of it orients them completely differently. And that's, of course, now as adults what we're trying to relearn. We have to orient ourselves to this inner feeling that I, my nature is good. Every so often I, I do the wrong thing, but it's not that I am wrong. I mean, how much time do we waste on guilt and fear and insecurity and anxiety and these thousands of things when in fact, well, the way the French saint said it, if we knew how much God loved us, we would die for joy. You know, we don't have to earn that. And we don't have to even try, you know, work to express it. We just have to not mess up. So the first, the yamas are all just don't mess up. Harmlessness. Harmlessness being the... Um, well, the, I love the way Swami puts it. Everyone wants power of some kind because power is an attribute of the soul. And ego-based power is what m many people mistakenly see, seek. But true power comes not from pitting oneself against others, but from winning their support. And of course, the best way to win people's support is to be very supportive of whatever their reality is. So Swami takes this beyond just physically harming people, but, but not doing anything 
that diminishes uh, someone else's ability to expand their own consciousness. And that can only come, really, again, from a really profound and deep inner sense of kindness. And one of the reasons that we have to emphasize so strongly, I emphasize so strongly about this thought that we ourselves are good, is because if we don't experience ourselves as good, we often project that uh, lack of trust and lack of appreciation onto others. And the more we can experience ourselves as fundamentally good, the more it's easy to see past the wrong behavior of anyone around us to that deep goodness within them. It all, it all begins with ourself, and we practice both ways. In fact, when I used to have a great deal more trouble being kind to myself, especially when I would do anything that I felt was less than stellar, which was often enough to leave me pretty edgy a lot of the time, I had, as it happened, I was very fortunate in some of my friendships, and there was one woman in my life in particular, and I just, the karmic circumstances were, that I just, I was deeply supportive of her. And uh, she was not very supportive of herself. But whatever she did, I could always feel the goodness behind it. And one day I realized that I was much more supportive and fair to her than I ever was to myself. And I started playing this mental game where any time I would do something that I was inclined to not be pleased with, I would pretend that she had come to me. And I would pretend that she had come to me and told me the story of what she had just done. And then I would, I would genuinely feel in my heart how I would regard it if it had been her action. And it was just fascinating to, to me to see how differently I would regard it if she had done it than if I had done it. And it was a a mind-transforming realization, an odd sort of thing, isn't it, to see it first in someone else. I know through the years with Swamiji, sometimes he advises people to work first with themselves to straighten out equality. Sometimes he advises them to work first with other people. It just sort of depends on which way your, your consciousness is oriented, which way it's going to work. Of course, I think you have to work simultaneously. So we have this concept of ahimsa, of not doing harm. And we have to include ourselves in that equation, which is this thought, this action I'm about to do, whatever it might be, this reaction I'm about to have, is this going to be helpful? And uh, recently a friend was inquiring to me because she, she's in a difficult um, relationship where she has to work closely with someone and there's a, a lot of difference of opinion and about what's going on. And there had been a, you know real friction moment like that. and So my friend had sent to me a copy of a letter she might send. <laughs> and she wanted my opinion as to whether it was a good idea to send it or not. You know, the, the question I asked back to her is, well, what are you hoping to accomplish? Do you think that this person will learn this lesson from you? And my, I mean, I gave her direct advice, which is I didn't, I felt that, that and she had given me, I said, I think that this This person is completely aware of the problem. I don't think they need to have it pointed out to them. They know in themselves the the weaknesses that they're expressing. They've already shown signs that they're learning. And I don't think that that this letter is actually going to move that situation forward at all. So from the point of view, will it help that person? No, actually, I don't think it will. But then you are also part of the equation because we have to also be impersonal about ourselves it's not a himsha to ourselves to always sacrifice ourselves, because sometimes it's not appropriate to sacrifice ourselves. It's not a question of being good. It's a question of being appropriate and doing the right thing. No specific external form is the right form. So I may emphasize that it has to be attitude. So I said, "What do you need in this situation? You know, is it is it important for you to have the courage to just declare your reality? Is this the moment when you feel?" that for you not to stand up for the truth as you see it would do yourself a disservice. And if that's the case, then I think you should send the letter. So the, my friend contemplated it for a while and said, no, I don't think I need to speak. So if it's not useful, I won't do it. I mean, that was a, a long session, but very often, like, what do I hope to accomplish by this? Because merely to be able to know what's true does not mean that it's helpful to state it. As simple as that. Let's take a little break here for a moment.
Do you think we're going to make it to the end, Lisa, or are you going to have to stop me in the middle? We won't, okay. The second of the yamas after harmlessness, I didn't ask if anybody had any questions. We were all just talking during the break, so I assumed that you would have asked them. <laughs> um, the second of the yamas after harmlessness, ahimsa, comes um, non-prevarication, which is such a, you know, just re- re- restraining the impulse to tell untruths. And of course, on a most fundamental level, this is just simply not to lie, not to tell terrible lies. Um, you know, I've always lived in an honest world. It wasn't until I, we had to go into court on a lawsuit that I discovered how much people can really lie. Odd that you would discover it in court. But we were faced with an attorney who was attacking Ananda at that time, who was leading the charge, who was a person who loved to lie. It was the, it was the oddest experience I have ever had in my life because the man would just open his mouth and say things that weren't true. And of course, it, this is not known unless you get caught into litigation. But the, pro, the, the entire American legal system is based on the fact that when you say, I swear under penalty of perjury that this is the truth, that people actually will tell the truth. And once anybody figures out that, gee, I don't have to tell the truth, even though there's a a system for correcting that, that system is enormously cumbersome and very ineffective. So this lawyer was very effective in his chosen profession, but he won't be effective for many incarnations. But he also found great pleasure in telling lies. And so he would lie about things that didn't even matter. And he would lie about things where the the lie could be uncovered. He just actually enjoyed... And it is what Swami writes here. It's like everybody wants power because power is an attribute of the soul. And this man had this bizarre delusion that he, he enjoyed the power that came from creating confusion by telling lies and by having power over people and messing up their realities by creating these false realities continuously. But for you know, pure-minded pure people like us, to just be in the company of someone who would just lie all the time was, was really startling. You know, it was, it, was a, it was a real education. And he had enough egoic power that he, he is still successful, but God knows what his future will be in this life or in other lifetimes. But Swami's desire here, comment here about telling the truth is twofold. One is not to use the ego power to try to create a false reality. That man was a terrible example of that. Because if you, you know, just try to create your own reality with power like he did, you can really push things on people. And it's interesting that Hitler's campaign against the Jews in Germany, which proved to be very effective in the end, was based on what he called the big lie. He said, if you tell small untruths, people are able to reason it out. He said, but if you tell a lie that's... And this was in his own... This is what he described in whatever book he wrote before he became powerful. If you tell a lie that is so big, he said it won't occur to people that it's untrue. Because it's just so big. So he told... You know, it was a technique he, ta- he, he proposed for having political power. Because one, if it's so big, people will think, well, no one would say such a thing unless there was some truth in it. And so they'll, they'll, they'll come at least halfway to where you are. But if you just tell a little bit, then they're equal, able to demolish it. So the whole campaign against the Jews was the big lie that all of Germany's problems were related to the Jews, that the Jews were inherently terrible. If we just got rid of the Jews, it was all just a big lie. There was never any basis in it at all. When Ananda was attacked... I mean, that's when I learned about that principle because we were subject to the big lie. We were told that we were a cult, that we were abusive to people, that we were hostile to women, that you know, we were prisoners in our own communities, that enormous financial abuse, so on, just huge. And many people would say to me, well, where there's smoke, there must be fire. They just didn't understand the concept of the big lie, that you could say something that had no truth at all. And this man that I'm talking about, he, that's, what he, that's how he did it. Now, the desire to do that is based on one, is the ego power that's possible, or as Swami said in the Bhagavad Gita, the pleasure it gives you to create confusion. But you see how powerful that is, people who lie? But the other reason that we tell untruth, and the much more subtle reason, 
is the kind of untruth we tell because we don't really have the courage to just see things as they are. This just sort of inner wish that things be different. And the the biggest um, untruth-telling impulse that we have is to tell untruth about reality, to not perceive reality as it is. And this is really what Patanjali is talking about. Yes, on a very gross level, there's the simple moral principle, for heaven's sakes, tell the truth as you know it. But on a deeper level, it's coming into this comfort. And, and, you know, this whole course started there, that karmic law is fair, and whatever happens is the way things are supposed to be, and I don't have to shrink. I don't have to tell myself untruths. I can see myself as I am. I can see the world as it is. I don't have to be afraid. I've shared with you several times that Swami Kriyananda has been talking a lot lately, and of course he's not the only one, that Master's predictions from the 1940s and 50s of, of serious economic problems for this country and for the world are really imminent. And he's talked about you know things that we can do, and I've had people say, well, we don't want him to talk about negative things like this. So I'm just like bewildered. It's like, but this is the truth. I mean, how can we just say, I don't want to talk about it? And so what Patanjali is saying, we have to restrain the desire to want to live in a fantasy world. And I don't just mean unpleasant truths, but just to really be able to see life as it is. I know people often object to me because sometimes they feel that, well, I mean, I had someone say to me, this is a beautiful world and you're always talking about, well, it isn't. (laughs) What can I say? That's not to say that Um, divine realities cannot be experienced here because we're experiencing them all the time. And the fact of the matter is I I live a very joyful and a happy life. But I look around and I see that the waves go up and the waves go down. And that this impulse we have to sort of secure our future, that was Nirmoha and I were talking this morning about the desire to secure our future. You know, to make decisions now that are going to lock it in in a certain way. These are the untruths that we have to restrain. You know, the idea that we can make the world different than it is. We have to stop telling ourselves those untruths. And we have, once we restrain the impulse to see delusion, then reality reveals itself to us. And this is, again, because this is a course on success, this is the key to getting into superconsciousness. I've... Uh, perhaps shared it before, but it's really a story worth telling. When, uh, when I was first getting to know Swami Kriyananda in those early years, he, the clarity of his mind and, and what I would call his intelligence was just uh, astonishing to me. Because it's, it, it, was a, it was a quality, I mean, though he had many other qualities, but I wasn't able to perceive a lot of them even because I hadn't developed them at all. But an intelligent mind was something, practically the only thing I concentrated on. I was actually in a restaurant recently and there was a family there and they were all sitting in the restaurant reading books while they had dinner. And I grew up that way. In, in my family, we, everybody came to the table with a book. You know, and even to this day, it's very hard for me to eat a meal without reading a book. <laughs> I feel just very uncomfortable. And it was just... You know, reading was so highly prized in my family that it was just like, and I, I never knew it was rude. I never thought anything about it. It's not that we never talked, but it was never considered inappropriate in my family to bring a book to the table. You could just sit there and read because that's what my parents wanted us to do. I mean, they weren't fanatical. It was what they themselves did. So that quality of, of mental intelligence is something that I, I'd always cultivated. So when I saw Swami that, you know, I was finishing in the bottom 2%, and he was way up there in the 100th percentile. I was just astonished. And I, and I used to, I could feel, I could sense in his intelligence that there was a different quality to his intelligence than mine. Mine was um, random. Mine was tense. Mine was um, impressive, but always a little uncertain. His was extremely calm, um, very casual. You know, just the kind of, the casual kind of, revelations, like he describes himself, he describes Yogananda as Yogananda, you know, attained his liberation a long time ago. 
and he wore his wisdom like a comfortable old jacket. That's how he put it, which I just love that. He wasn't self-conscious, or he didn't have to be self-protective. He, he just simply was in that state of absolute bliss, and he was just perfectly at ease with it. And I watched Swami's intelligence. He was perfectly at ease with it. He didn't have to strain. And I, I pondered the mystery of it, and I, I, I finally began to understand from experiences I had myself where I was so incapable of, of understanding something, and I finally realized the reason I couldn't understand is because I didn't want to know. It was just so simple. I pretended that I wanted to know, but intuitively I knew that the answer that I was going to get was not going to be to my liking. So I protected myself from that perception by pretending to be confused. That was my little game. Gee, I just can't understand this. And when I finally realized, it was because I was afraid to know. And that experience taught me the secret of Swami's intelligence because he was not afraid to know anything. Because he had this more than lip service commitment. He just wanted to know what was true. I mean, really, what would be the point of living in a dream world? Well, I can think of a lot of reasons to live in a dream world. It's more comfortable, it's less frightening. You know, and maybe if I just pretend, it'll turn out to be right. With, with all due respect, that's a certain amount of what people were saying to me. I wish Swami would stop talking about these cataclysmic things. You know, well, so what? Do you think, like, they won't happen if he doesn't talk about them? It's like, if it's going to happen, we should be talking about it. If it's not going to happen, that's fine. Even if it doesn't happen, that's fine. But why would we be afraid to talk about it? And that's what I saw in Swamiji was his heart was completely calm. There was no agitation in it. And that was what I also began to understand was the unique quality of his intelligence. He had nothing at stake. He was just there to understand what was true. And, and, and you could present it, he could present it, a child could present it. It didn't make any difference to him. It wasn't about his truth, it was just about truth. And in fact, um, his advice to me just about you know, being less agitated about things was, he just said, truth will take care of itself. <laughs> you know, you don't have to worry all the time about whether or not things are going to come out right. It just, truth will take care of itself. So when we collect all of these qualities of the yamas and the niyamas together, one of the things it gives us is the non-attachment and the courage, everything works together, to just stop needing to assert untruth but just be able to live calmly and peacefully and acceptingly in whatever actually is. There's another aspect of that, though, which is also really important, which is that truth is a higher level of reality. I remember Swamiji once, well, this was, the whole story was just ridiculous. This was also back to our legal case, since my mind is sort of there. In the last days of, you know, 12 years of litigation, well, this was 1998, we weren't really in the 12th year yet, we were just in the middle. It didn't end until 2002, I think. 1998, we went through a big courtroom drama, and we were in this horrible trial with a jury and a judge, and it was, it was a, a mess. It was not dharma in any respect, and the judge was prejudiced, and every day was worse than the day after. And we were un- in this position because we had hired a private investigator who messed up, basically, and his wrong actions rebounded on us, and we were constrained by this prejudiced judge from actually presenting our case, which, you know, if you don't present your case, you have a, a less a chance of winning, you can imagine, especially when you're in a jury trial and the jury doesn't know why you're not presenting your case, which is why I will never, ever, ever serve on a jury, because the jury is often sent out of the room and they don't have a clue as what's really going on. So we were in that. And every day was worse than the day before. This went on for weeks. And the entire legal team, which was about eight or nine people, plus Swami Kriyananda, were living in our house. And every every morning for, you know, many weeks, we would get up in the morning, we'd go down to Redwood City, and we'd spend the day in the torture chamber of the uh, courthouse. So it was memorable. And uh, every morning at breakfast, every morning at breakfast, Swami would say, well, you know, I think maybe the worst is over and things are going to look up. I think, you know, that even the judge is beginning to see it a little differently. I think juror number four, he really looked like he was interested. Don't you think so? And everyone, including me, at the table would say, no, 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 like that. And then we would, like, 
start explaining to Swamiji why there was absolutely no hope. And he would then just, you know, we just quietly have breakfast. Almost literally on the very last day, it occurred to me, duh, that for one thing, Swami is not stupid. He was sitting in the same room, you know, and he knows human nature better than any of us. He was trying to generate a little positive magnetism. And he was also just sort of trying to put us on a level where, you know, things are going better. It doesn't matter what happens in this trial. Everything is going better. It's always going better. And this positive force is eventually going to win. And um, the last day when he started saying everything was going to go better, I had finally figured it out. And I started saying, yes, sir, I absolutely think that's true, you know. And, you know, almost everyone else was just looking at me like, what is wrong with you? This is going to be the worst day ever. And, of course, it always was because nothing was going our way. And we weren't really depressed about it. But in, when I later talked to Swamiji about it, I sort of was saying, you know, I, I, I recited the, my whole perception. And I said, you know, that was really what you were trying to do, wasn't it? And he said, yes. But then he sort of said, it's a very fine line. Or I think I said to him, I said, it's a very fine line, isn't it? Because your assertion of positive outcome, positive uh, potentialities, was not based on fear of negative potentialities. You see what I mean? Because so often when people try to come on like that, they're really afraid of what might happen. But he was fearless. He didn't really care what happened, but he thought it might help us if we just got a little positive magnetism going and might actually even influence the outcome. And then he said to me something like, to me, he said, you know, you're, you're negative sometimes. I never think of myself as negative. And I said, I am? And then he said it like this, because you're so factual. <laughs> factual. And the, you know, the way he said that just rang in my head. And I, I, I have another relationship with a, a friend, and she illustrated it back to me, because she's very factual. And often there's situations that she's involved in, and you know, she's, she's telling me all the difficulties and I'm always answering by saying, by telling her somehow it could work out. And if I ever get too much positive energy going, even about the potential for things working out, she wants to make sure that I have all the facts, you know, and she makes sure that I haven't missed a single fact that might indicate that it won't like that. And we end up in this head-to-head conflict all the time and finally we sort of came to a resolution. But I realized I was looking in the mirror you know, just because truth is not just the facts. Truth is where the whole flow of energy is going. And that's why in the section on harmlessness also, Swamiji says, don't gossip. You know, don't say bad things about people. Don't emphasize the negative. Even Master, Swamiji said, what was, this, what was it where he was writing? Let me catch it right now. Oh, when he was saying once, you know, when he first met Sister Gyanamata, and he tells this in the path, and he saw Sister Gyanamata, and he sort of had a, a, a not very favorable opinion of her, and only afterwards did he realize she was a great soul. So I'll be somewhere where I was reading this. He, he, maybe it was in these lessons, but he was mentioning that he was telling Master about that story sort of humorously. And Master said, why say things like that? You know, just like, yes, it's a fact, but it's not an uplifting fact. Why bring it up? Why give it energy? It's not really truth. You know, anything that's not uplifting is not really truth, yes? Truth is beneficial. Truth is beneficial. That's exactly the right words. And it's been interesting to me because ever since he said that to me, I'm not completely attentive to it, but I try more to be. I try to be a lot less factual. And I've started noticing in groups and things sometimes when other people have feel this commitment to be factual, fearing that somehow we're not grasping the truth, how it diminishes the energy. And if you diminish the energy, you're being less truthful. It's a very subtle definition. There is the definition of just meaning what you say, being sincere. I mean, a lot of things like that too. But this is a much more subtle one. Which aspect of truth do you want to emphasize? And when you emphasize the highest dimension of truth, that's what Patanjali is asking us to do. Because the untruth he's concerned about is delusion, not facts. 
So anything that brings our mind down from divine awareness is an untruth. Anything that causes us anxiety is an untruth. Of course, you have to balance it, like Swami said, because when I was talking to him about that court case, it was sort of like, not everyone can pull that off, can they? No, he said, you have to be very, essentially what he was saying, you have to be very sure of what you're doing. And of course, he was very sure of what he was doing. He was seeing the whole situation. We were not. And he was also working with us because there we were in this awful situation. He was trying to give us an idea of how you should respond, which was to be a lot less factual than we were being because it was pulling it down. It's, it's, I, I, I have, I have I've made a practice and I, I'm more or less conscientious about it at different times, but it's, it's a really fun practice and I highly recommend it. It's a combination of um, the first two, harmlessness and truth which is in all conversations, practicing if you can say what you need to say without ever being unkind or unflattering. Without being unkind or unflattering to people. You know? And it's really quite fun because you can often just find another way of saying it, which isn't really, which is still supportive, but still the whole picture, you can still get the point across. And I don't just mean that you point arrows and everybody knows what you're really saying. But you just find another way of saying it. Like, um, you know, well, yes, someone's, someone's personality really is impressive. <laughs> you know? And they have an impressive personality. You don't have to say that they have an obnoxious personality. You don't have to say that they have an overbearing personality. You can say that they're impressive. They really have an impressive personality. You know, I, um, other examples don't come to me, but it's, it's quite interesting how, how supportive you can be, how honest you can be, and, and how much you can practice ahimsa, even with your words and your thoughts. Because it's the words, and it's our thoughts and our attitudes that really constitute the reality, because all of this is about shifting our inner consciousness. All right? Well, that was yama number two, and I think that's the point we'll stop. Okay, so we'll probably still be on this lesson next week. I can't imagine that we'll, um, that won't take us the whole class to finish it. Okay, so that will do us for tonight. Thank you.